Hi, I'm Eric Reinhardt. I'm an MD-PhD candidate in anthropology uh, and also study medicine at the University of Chicago. And I've been doing research for the last year on the way in which the mass, the system of mass incarceration in the U.S. threatens uh, broader communities. Uh, I'm pleased to join Dr. Williams here on race, violence, and medicine. Good day, everyone. Welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Brian Williams. I am a trauma surgeon in Chicago, working on the South Side, and I'm glad you're joining us again for my podcast. I appreciate the continued support. You can always find back episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or check out my website, brianwilliamsmd.com. I'm excited about today's guest. Today, we have Eric Reinhardt, and this individual is somewhat of a renaissance man in academia, so I'm going to let him tell, him tell you more about his background and where he's from. So Eric Reinhardt, welcome to Race, Violence, and Medicine. Thank you, Dr. Williams. If by renaissance you mean an academic failure, I think that's about right. They say that <laughs> if, you, if you can't do, you teach. I'm doing what you do if you can't teach. I don't know quite what it is, so... But thank you for having me. I'm a, but formally I'm an MD PhD candidate with my MD at the University of Chicago and my PhD at Harvard. I'm finishing them both now, uh, PhD in anthropology. And then I'm also, I've been training for the last half decade or so as a psychoanalyst. So I think that's, that's, that's pretty humble of you to say that you consider yourself a failure if you have you Chicago, Harvard <laughs> and psychoanalytics as part of your, uh, your resume. But I, Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Like, where are you from and how did you get to where you are doing these things now? Yeah. Well, I had the, the good fortune to go to Harvard as an undergrad, um, where I met a bunch of people who were MD, PhDs in the social sciences. So Paul Farmer, who a lot of people know now, uh, Jeremy Green, who's a historian and internist at Hopkins and several others. And that first gave me the idea that I could do a kind of... Um, combined course of training and the work that I wanted to do required me to work the intersection of medicine and kind of analysis of social dynamics. So then I started at the University of Chicago for medical school and I hadn't, I thought I would actually be a historian, but I was a, you've somewhat recently joined the University of Chicago because we didn't have trauma surgeons when I started at medical school back then. Um, and I kind of was brought into this institution, attracted to the idea that it was working in a context with extremely high unmet need. And there was the possibility for building systems of care to do that. And then I found myself disillusioned, uh, to put it very frankly, with like how things were actually happening on the south side of Chicago. And a lot of care that should be provided, could be provided, wasn't being provided for various logistical, financial, institutional reasons. So then that kind of drove me to end up not pursuing a history degree, but anthropology, um, where I could work with the more kind of nitty gritty textured everyday realities that I, that kind of pricked me on the south side of Chicago, that prick a lot of people, a lot of people who work, you know, at the University of Chicago elsewhere, you know, want to find ways to, to address deficiencies. So then when I started doing my field work, I came back to Chicago and I wanted to work on gun violence, actually, this is very much your, your area. I wanted to work on um, the invocations of the idea of emergency to claim rights. So in the history of political theory, emergency is usually seen as a reactionary thing. 
the sovereign declares a state of emergency and thereby suspends rights. But on the South side in 2009, 10, 11, there's a lot of grassroots organizing at the neighborhood level to say, look, gun violence on the South side is an emergency and we do not have access to things that should be our basic rights in a context of enormous wealth in the US, on the South side. I mean, it just, uh, and that was specifically a trauma center. So I was you know, drawn to that. And then as I started doing that research, this is a long backstory. I um no, no, it's good. It's good. As I started doing that research, I felt like this this wasn't work that I wanted to do, that I could do. I mean, I was going to I was spending nights in ERs and people coming in. I was going to the scenes where people had been shot. And and I realized even though my goal was to do something different from what the history of sociology, urban sociology in Chicago has done, uh, which is, you know, it's been obsessed with social pathology. Uh, broken families, criminality, these very negative tropes. I thought I was doing something different, but nonetheless, my point of entry was the question of violence. And I felt like I was against my own will being reinscribed into these pathologizing discourses that I wanted no part of. So then <laughs> I started, uh, I completely reoriented everything I was doing and I started attending, um, not knowing that this would become kind of my research object, uh, but neighborhood writing workshops. You know, so from the 30s and 40s, there's been a strong literary tradition in black communities in Chicago on the south and west sides that sociologists and others who have studied intensely these neighborhoods for decades have rarely, if ever, attended to. So I became interested in like, what are the stakes of self-representation from of writing oneself from these contexts that have been so intensely overwritten by academics, by journalists, by others, so as part of that, I started following people around, people who became my friends in these writing workshops, and a lot of them had been through Cook County Jail, and I thought I should trace the structural dynamics uh, in relation to which people are writing. So I started doing some ethnographic research inside Cook County Jail. Um, and so that, I never intended to do the public health work that I've been doing during the pandemic. It's just that when the pandemic started, having been in the spaces of the jail, it was obvious to me that there was no way they'd be able to contain spread effectively given their current or their procedures at that time. And particularly in the processing spaces um, where people are brought in often in paddy wagons from other local facilities to the jail to be processed. They're held in bullpens. They're put in you know, relatively small rooms in large crowds waiting to be processed, to be interviewed for psychiatric evaluations, which is another whole set of problems and how Psychiatry kind of has been um, rendered a, a handmaiden of the criminal justice system. But anyway, so I. Right. So, so let me. Yeah, start. go ahead. Kind of a courageous thing to do to to uh, change your whole uh, your, your whole destination, right, based on things you've learned. Uh, did you have any angst about doing that? Was it an easy transition for you? Because uh, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that are thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the whole conceit of ethnographic research, of anthropological research, is that you go into a space and you're led by the dynamics that you give yourself to, to the, the people that you give yourself to. So in some ways, this was not such a crazy thing to do. This was, in my view, like being faithful to the ethical conceit, because it often doesn't play out this way, of, of what drives ethnographic research, which is not that you superimpose your epistemic frame, your presuppositions, but you go in, you have, you know, necessarily you have some of those, and then you open them to being dismantled, remade. Uh, so, I mean, I think this is what 
research, not just anthropological research, ethnographic research. I think this is what research with human relations should always be about, an open-ended right. process through which the people that you meet upend everything that you thought you knew. I think if you go to do research and you come out doing what you thought you were going to do, if it's you know pertaining to social dynamics, it's, it's probably not very good. <laughs> right. Well, let's talk about this. Uh, so you made that transition and just talk about this um, this concept, I guess, of carceral community epidemiology that you spend yeah. a lot of your time dealing with. What does that mean? And how are you, what are you doing in that space? Yeah. So, you know, there's a long tradition and a wonderful tradition of critiquing and trying to dismantle the system of mass incarceration in the U.S. And this is primarily focused on, you know, the ethics of the system, the racism of the system, the harms that it causes people, the fact that it doesn't improve public safety. One thing that has been less emphasized, and it's not necessarily the most important thing, but it might be useful for actually achieving effect, is the way that the criminal punishment system in the US, it's kind of an oxymoron to call it a criminal or paradox called the criminal justice system. But uh, so the criminal punishment system, uh, one of the things that it does is that it, it's been known for a long time to be a multiplier of infectious diseases and a distributor of them back out to communities, not just in the US. This has been noted, Paul Farman, Salman Kashabji, who, who are co-authors on this piece we put in New England Journal of Medicine recently, they've noted this with TB in Russia and Peru and many other places around the world for decades. People have noted this with hepatitis C, again, in the, in the US as well as other places, influenza, community-acquired pneumonias, all these things. So, so say that again. So yeah, uh, I, I like I like how you called it the criminal punishment system because that really reframes how we think about this. But from an infectious disease standpoint, you you just said that incarceration is a multiplier for infectious diseases, not only within the um, the, the jail system, but also within the surrounding communities. Did I get that correct? Yeah, and I mean this is because right. we, we know. I mean, if you do a little bit of just googling, the U.S has a very intensely crowded jail prison system. Uh, the ACLU and others have brought this before the UN several times as a violation of basic human rights, uh, the overcrowding of these systems. Uh, many of the, before the pandemic began, it was a majority of our uh, prison systems across the US states that were operating at over 100% capacity. Like that it's, the overcrowding is, is immense. So you put a bunch of people in a tight space, they're not allowed to move, they don't have the, the mechanisms by which to protect themselves from, um, from like airborne diseases, for example, uh, and those diseases multiply. So what we've seen with COVID is a good, a good illustration of what's been happening for a very long time with other diseases as well. Uh, so COVID in US jails and prisons has the highest reproduction ratio of any institutional context in the world, greater than even confined cruise ships. Uh, this is research by Emily Wang and Lisa Puglisi out of Yale uh, and others have shown uh, similar epidemiological dynamics. So what's happening with COVID, this incredible wave of SARS-CoV-2 that's taken over the U.S. prison and jail system has been happening for a long time with other conditions as well. And this, as, as you just said, it's not just something that puts people who are detained at risk. Because we have a system in which there are 420, more than 420,000 jail and prison guards who go in and out of these facilities every day, we have 11 million arrests and releases just from U.S. jails each year. So with prisons, that's about 
a little over 30,000 people that go in and out of the of detainees, go in and out of these facilities every day, they're incredibly porous. So whatever happens in these facilities, epidemiologically speaking, goes back out into communities. Um, so how do we, what, there, my impression that there seems to be a, an indifference to what is happening within the prison systems within COVID, yeah. with COVID. And what you described to me is very clear that it is not just the prisoners who are at risk, it is the guards, it is their family, the families of the guards and their yeah. friends in the Toronto community. But there still seems to be this indifference to that sort of danger. Yeah. How do you get people to appreciate how important it is for us to make prison health a priority? Yeah. I mean, I was invoking that long tradition. Angela Davis is a leader in that. Ruthie Wilson Gilmore, others of, of kind of opposing the Carl Serial state in the U.S., the prison industrial complex. But if you look at the numbers over time, it like what effect has it had? And I'm not saying it's their deficiency, but I think that speaks to the callousness, the kind of banality of evil that operates within the U.S. Uh, system and culture at this point. So it's very difficult to get people to you know, everybody acknowledges mass incarceration, even conservatives in the US, Republicans in Congress, Trump acknowledges that mass incarceration is a bad thing, but it doesn't change. How do you motivate change? And so the thought with carceral community epidemiology, which is a new kind of framework that refuses the distinction between community health and correctional health as if they're different things and says, these are always intertwined. Yes, the motivation yes, I agree. There. Go ahead, Eric, go ahead. <laughs> the motivation there is to try to say, look, even if you don't care about structural racism, even if you don't really care about the system of mass incarceration, your skin is involved in this game. Your grandmother, exactly. your kids are affected by this system. You may live in the most, you know, the whitest, wealthiest neighborhood on the north side of Chicago. What happens on the south side, because of this constant circulation, affects you. Epidemiology doesn't respect boundaries of segregated neighborhoods in the US. And if we want to build a, a functional public health system, in which we are protected against future pandemics and epidemic outbreaks, and even just ordinary influenza and pneumonias every year, we have to address this system, which puts the entire US population, and by virtue of viral mutations and other things, the rest of the world at risk. Um, so the hope is that this framework, we can wake people up just through kind of picking their own self-interest. And you realize that you know this, this has to be changed. Yeah, I like that because like you said, we treat prison health as if it's separate from public health. We treat the safety net hospital system as a separate from right. everything else. But these are all intertwined. And until we have a coordinated um, uh, response to this through the lens of public health, uh, we're going to continue to have these variable systems of health they're not really solving the problem, right? They're just kind of trying to soften the blow for a, a bigger problem that's of our own creation. Yeah, yeah, I think this is right. true. And so you just recently had, an, uh, mm -hmm. so, so going off with this, you just recently had an article in the New England Journal, which I guess was the first time that the word decarceration has appeared in the journal. Did I get that correct? Yeah, there was a piece earlier in the spring that used decarcerating in quotation marks. That arguably is the first use of the term in any of its various permutations, but decarceration, yeah, this was the first use of it in our piece. It was titled um, uh, Vaccination Plus Decarceration, Stopping COVID-19 in Jails and Prisons. And the emphasis of that, well, go ahead, Brian, sorry, or sorry. No, no, tell us about decarceration and tell us about the, your, your journal piece. Congratulations, by the way, that's a, 
that's a great honor. Yeah, thank you. We were joined, uh, Ben Barsky and I, who's a PhD student and lawyer at Harvard, we were joined by Salman Khashoggi and Paul Farmer, who really helped uh, support the piece, and we're grateful to them. Um, yeah, so decarceration, it's, it's, I think the Oxford English Dictionary uh, codified it this year. So it's a relatively new term for the general public, not for activists who work in this area, but it consists of not just mass releases, which we've seen some of, not enough during, um, during the pandemic, but also addressing the system of arrest that I described earlier, 11 million people cycle through jails uh, in ordinary years. So it's both kind of addressing the front end unnecessary jailing and imprisonment of people, and then also releasing the over 2 million people who are inside of the US uh, carceral system. And a lot of people respond to this reflexively because we've been trained to say, oh no, this will put public safety at risk. And I think a really important intervention is to reframe this discussion around public safety. Um, this has been dominated by criminological discourses, which only measure safety based on crime rates. And in fact, even based on crime rates, the system of mass incarceration in the US, is, in the US does not, <laughs> does not uh, positively affect public safety. Um, but if you expand public safety to consider what I was describing earlier, these epidemiological dynamics and the things that really put Americans at risk every day, they're not violent crime. It's heart disease, diabetes, uh, the sequela of poverty. All of these things are exacerbated by the system of mass incarceration. Influenza deaths every year, a lot more influenza deaths than there are you know, deaths from violent crime in most instances. So. Um, I think it's really important to kind of reshape that discussion and bring in the broader public health framework when we're talking about safety. And when you bring that in, then decarceration is like an obviously necessary step to, to protect public safety in the U.S. Well, Eric, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating discussion. And I, what I like about it is, even though I think most of the world is better educated on public health and infectious diseases and pandemics. What you're showing is that how this intersects with criminology, uh, anthropology, sociology, there's this, it doesn't exist in a silo. These all things kind of work together and potentially solving, if not improving one, will have ripple effects in so many other domains. So thank you for showing us that. I appreciate your time. Thank today. you for having me, Dr. Where can people track you down? I follow you on Twitter, which I will give you a, give you a shout out. It's probably one of the most educational <laughs> Twitter feeds that are out there. I learn something every day from your tweets. Uh, but uh, where would folks track you down if yeah, they want to get a hold of you after If you show? just Google Eric Reinhardt, uh, Harvard, I have a, an academic website there and I have some contact information. People can reach me through that. And you want to spell your name? Yeah, uh, so Eric with a C and then Reinhardt, R-E-I-N-H-A-R-T. All right, thank you very much. We've had Eric Reinhardt on talking about uh, a fascinating intersection of criminology, infectious disease, anthropology. I just, like I said, I just call you the, the, the academic renaissance, man. Thank you for your time today. I want to thank you all for tuning again into the show. Remember, you can... Catch all the back episodes anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Please tell your family and friends about the show. And also hit up my website, brianwilliamsmd.com. And I spell Brian with an I. And just so you know, I'm working on my book, 
It is getting close to completion. My agent hopefully will soon send out my proposal to get a publisher. So uh, I'll keep you posted on that, but you can, you can sign up for my newsletter to get updates on how that is coming along. So a lot of stuff going on and I still gotta go back to work. So right now, that's gonna end our show for today. So I get back to being, being a doctor. You all stay safe. Thank you very much.